0: Beloved of Christ, this is God's word given for our correction, our training, and uh, so that we might know him and follow him. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out and or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things, and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that day there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So ends uh, the reading Of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Almighty God, everyone claims to want to know you, but the truth is we fear knowing you, for you are too marvelous, too wonderful, and too powerful for us. For to know you is to know that you can't be controlled. And yet without you, there is no hope, there is no life, and there is no salvation. And so we crave knowing you. We're made to know you, to love you, to rest in you. And to do these things, we need to know you better. So we beg, we plead that you would calm our fears, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to know you and to submit to you. All of this we ask through your Son and by your Spirit. Be among us, we ask. Amen. You may be seated. We live between the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Old Testament, from the beginning, has made it clear that there are two big days uh, in history. The first was the day when the Messiah would come. He would bring his kingdom and he would bring salvation, not just to the Jews, but to the entire world. And the second big day is the last day. At the end of time... When God will draw all earthly history to a close and he will bring his final judgment. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at Jesus' announcement that the first of those two days, the coming of that kingdom, has come in Jesus Christ. And that means that really all we are waiting for is that last day when Jesus will come again in judgment. That's what we're waiting for. That's the age we're living in, the time between those two big days. So my question for you this morning is if you could paint a picture or, or maybe you're into sculpting and if you could make a sculpture, some visible representation to represent the age we live in between that first coming and the second, what would that representation look like? How would you represent visibly the time Between his comings. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Because it can capture so much. So how would you choose to portray what our age looks like? Well of course to figure that out you would have to understand the nature of the time. That period between Christ's first coming and his second You can't very well capture it in a single image if you don't understand it. And that's what our passage is about today. What does that time look like? Turning from his statement that his that kingdom will come, or it has come, without visible markers, Jesus turns his attention to, to the last day, the end of the world. His concern is partly what that day will look like, but the far greater concern is what it means to be ready for the arrival of that day. And so that's where our focus will be uh, this morning as we look at this passage. We'll see that the day will come with unmistakable clarity, but it will come without warning. And when it comes, it will be too late to prepare So we must prepare before it comes. But how? That's the great question, right? And so what we're going to see is that preparing for the end of the world means neither trying to escape nor ignoring its coming, but living every day in light of its certainty. That's how we prepare. We neither try to escape it nor ignore it, but we live every day in light of its certainty. That's really what we're going to see in our passage. Now, last time uh, we were in Luke, a couple weeks ago, we did look at verses 20 and 21, and we saw Jesus address the Pharisees who questioned him about when the kingdom would come, when it would be inaugurated, when it would start. They had assumptions about the nature of that kingdom, and therefore what it would look like, they thought that the kingdom of God was a, a, a political, cultural force. And so they thought it would come with, with visible power and influence. They envisioned armies, invasions, battles, surrenders, treaties, or slaughters, depending on uh, what in, which each individual idea looked like. If they had drawn a picture of their idea... It probably would have been an epic mural across a wall. Kings commanding armies and battle and defeat. And and on one side, the look of terror in the eyes. and, And on the other side, the sweet joy of victory on the faces of the prevailing army. And against those expectations of what they thought the kingdom would look like, Jesus said his kingdom would come without much in the way. Of any visible, observable manifestation. Because God's kingdom is not interested in in earthly power, earthly politics or nations. And so it won't be obvious. No one will say, there it is. I see it. Instead, it will be seen in in the healing of the afflicted and the salvation of sinners. It will be obvious to those who know what to look for but they will be few and far between. They will praise their God with gratitude. They will experience the power of God's kingdom in their salvation, and they will appreciate it. But everyone who's looking for something else will completely miss it, even though it sits right in front of them. It's against that image of the, of the almost unnoticeable king, coming of the kingdom that Jesus then starts to talk about another future day when the Son of Man will come. Now, now he's talking about himself, but the Son of Man is a title uh, of, of authority and victory taken from the book of Daniel. Let me just read the, that passage real quick. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold Jesus is talking about the end of the world when he will return. And he says that day will be the opposite from the inauguration, the beginning. It'll be like lightning in the sky. Not only visible, but it can't be ignored. No one will say, I didn't even notice. Yeah, I guess if I was looking, I would have seen it. No, unmistakable, cannot be ignored. While the inauguration of the kingdom can be easily missed, the consummation can't be missed. It's unmistakable. It'll be global, it will be final, and it will be severe. It will bring death, and, and that's what Jesus was referring to in, in verse 37. He's telling his disciples, they'll know it when they see it. I don't need to tell you where, you will know. So what's the point? Why bring it up, especially if, if it will be so obvious to everyone when it comes? And the reason he brings it up, the reason he talks about it, is because he wants us to be prepared for its coming. Recognizing it won't be the hard part. Being prepared for it will be. He wants us to understand just how sudden it will come so that we can be prepared for it before it comes. And to help with that, Jesus draws a parallel to the last day, to two events um, in the Old Testament. He says, the last day will be like these two events in the Old Testament. And he says, it will be like the days of Noah, uh, verse 26, and it will be like the days of Lot, verse 28. Now, the days of Noah refer to the great flood that came and destroyed all of mankind except for Noah and his family because they were safe on the ark. You can read about that in Genesis 6 through 9. And then there's the days of Lot, which refers to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that refers uh, to uh, that period that you can read about in Genesis 18 and 19. And these two episodes... Uh, the story of Noah and the story of Lot have a lot in common. Both Noah and Lot were warned about, uh, that day of judgment, that it was coming, and, and told to prepare. Both, uh, I'm sorry, but both, but around, um, both of them were those who were either ignorant or unconcerned, and they continued to go on life, on with life, uh, as if nothing would ever change. And so they ate. They drank, they planted crops, they built buildings, and they laughed at the idea that God's patience was running out and that he was coming in judgment. And so they gave themselves over to their sinful desires. The days of Noah were described as the people being completely given over to their evil thoughts and desires. Sodom and Gomorrah have become uh, synonymous with with sexual perversion and indulgence. In those cities, nothing was forbidden. Nothing was taboo. If it felt good, they did it. If anyone objected, they got canceled. The virtuous were shunned. The perverse were exalted. And they went on thinking that nothing would ever change, that God would never come. That moral debts would would never be called due. And then one day, it started raining. And it didn't stop for 40 days. The waters rose until not a single inch of, of dry ground remained. And in a single day, the entire world was drowned. Years later, it was not water that came down from the sky, but fire. And Sodom and Gomorrah were erased from the map. In it, people were found walking, sleeping, working, talking, eating. The time to prepare had passed. It was too late. Judgment had come. And Jesus says, so will it be on the day of the Son of Man. There are no better previews to the last day than the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be without warning. It will be cataclysmic. It will be unmistakable, as unmistakable as a global flood and just as sudden. It will be as obvious as fire from the sky and just as unexpected. This is what the last day will be like. God is patient. The flood did not come The day people's hearts started pursuing evil. Fire didn't come down on Sodom and Gomorrah the first time they pursued their their perverse indulgences. God bears with sin for a little while. That's who He is. But the danger is when we mistake uh, that patience to mean He will never come. He will never bring judgment. There's there's an arrogance that believes that because someone has been patient so far, they always will be, and that you can take advantage of their kindness forever. The flood and Sodom and Gomorrah are meant to remind us that that is not the case. More than this, they're meant to remind us that not everyone died. In both of those episodes, there are those who escaped the judgment. Those who were not prepared, those who refused to turn to God, those who refused to repent, they were carried away in death. But Noah and his family, they remained after the flood. Lot and his two daughters survived the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's a danger there. Noah and his family, Law and his daughters. There's a danger to start thinking, well, as long as I'm in the right family, I'll be okay. And so Jesus warns in verse 34, husbands and wives will be torn apart when the day of judgment comes. It's not enough to surround yourself with a good community, a wonderful community. Neighbors will be divided, verse 35. You can't depend upon those around you thinking that God will show preference to you because you're a part of the right family or community or church or country. You must be ready. You must prepare. But how? How do you prepare for the last day? Well, Jesus gives us two mistakes To avoid. And some instructions on what to do. In verse 22, he says that his disciples will start to long for the last day. And this is because of what he says in verse 25. Why would you long for the last day? Well, first, speaking about himself, he says that before the last day comes, he must suffer and be rejected. In other words, before the glory comes the cross comes. And the Bible will go on to make clear that that's not just true for Jesus, it's true for all who belong to him. Romans 8, we heard it in our call to worship this morning, it says, we will be glorified with him if we suffer with him. We must suffer many things and be rejected as Jesus was. And really, it could be no other way. Because if this world is like Sodom and Gomorrah, if it's like the generation of Noah, then following Jesus will make your life harder, not easier. You will be unpopular. You will be hated. And you will be despised. And you will be rejected and attacked and mistreated. And Jesus knows what that will lead to. It's going to lead to many to simply want to escape. And you know what happens when you really, really want something. You start to see it where it isn't. And if you look for the end so passionately, you will be willing to see it where it isn't. And that will lead you to be duped by false teachers. There will be those who will say the end has come. That Jesus has already returned. Others will say they know exactly when he's coming. So quit your job. Sell all you have and follow me. Many cults grow around a teacher who claims he knows when the last day is coming. Jesus says, don't be fooled. Everyone will find out at the same time. So the first mistake to avoid in preparing for the last day is to avoid wanting to escape so badly that you're willing to see it where it isn't. And the other mistake is just to ignore the end and treat this world as if it was eternal or all that there is. When you fully invest yourself And your hope is only in what you possess in this life. When you think this life is all there is, you will give yourself, you'll give your life to whatever it is you value the most. That might be money, it might be power, it could be fun and leisure. It could be relationships or it could be pleasure. And anything that that appears to threaten that which you hold above all else will be seen as the enemy. But here's the worst part. Whatever it is that you value, that you find your identity in, that you find your hope in, you will try to hold on to it at all costs. A, A question my kids have asked is, if our house was on fire, what would you run back in to save? You get it, right? What is so important to you that you're willing to risk your life for it? Jesus is asking, what is worth risking your eternity for? Because everything else is fleeting. And everything else uh, pales in comparison to eternity. Look at verse 31. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one in the field not turn back. He's saying there is nothing worth trying to hold on to when that day comes. The image... Is of a person on the last day when the sky is lit up with the return of Jesus. And there's no mistaking what's next. And that person wants to run in and grab their valuables. But we all know the old expression, you can't take it with you. And yet people try over and over. And the question is, why do they try? And the answer is because... When that's all you have, all you value, you will do the irrational in an attempt to hold on to it. It's like Lot's wife fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, fire raining down from heaven, and she looks back in longing for what's burning because Sodom to her was her home. And she preferred it to God's rescue. And seeking hold on to the life she knew, she lost everything. She gained neither God's rescue nor the life she had. And that's the warning. When you value this life and all it offers over what God offers in the life to come, you end up with neither. Because we all die. There's no stopping it. We all know that's true. That should not be a surprising statement this morning. The question is, what then? Whoever places all their hope in this life ends up with nothing on the last day. But those who hear God's offer for rescue, those who recognize that the end is coming and that there is a way to escape it, they will be saved. For Noah, it meant getting into the ark. For Lot, it meant leaving the city and following his rescuers. And for us, it simply means to surrender to Jesus Christ, to put our faith in him, to follow him wherever he leads and to not look back. He's made a way of escape and he mentions it in verse 25. He says he has to suffer and be rejected because if he didn't, No one would ever survive the last day. Every one of us deserves to die with the generation of Noah. Every one of us deserves to die with with the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. The only hope for salvation is for someone to come and stand in our place and suffer the flood, so that we don't have to, suffer the fires of heaven so that we don't have to. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's the way of escape. To trust the one who would suffer the judgment for us. For those who trust in Jesus then, the the judgment of the last day has already been poured out and there is no judgment remaining. And so they will survive the last day because they belong to Jesus. They'll be as safe as Noah and his family. In the ark. They'll be as safe as Lot and his daughters following the angels out of Sodom. They won't run to grab their stuff. They'll recognize their Savior come on the clouds and they will run to Him. Fully prepared for that day, they'll greet it like an old friend and say, I've been expecting you. But it will come in God's time and not ours. We can neither hasten it nor put it off. All we can do is be prepared for it to come at any time. To the young people, there tends to be a pattern of blindness that thinks, I can take care of these things when I get older. First, I'm going to have my fun. First of all, you'll always think you can take care of it later. But no one has tomorrow guaranteed. I don't care if you're 93 or 9 or 3. You must live every day prepared for the last. And then you need not fear it. This is the world between Christ's first coming and his second. Between the kingdom being unnoticeably inaugurated and unmistakably consummated. And so I return to the question I started with. If you could paint a picture or make a sculpture or, or some visible representation of, of this age that we live in, between the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ, what would you do? What would it look like? How would you represent that time between his comings in a visible way? Because they say a picture's worth a thousand words, it can capture so much. What would you choose to portray it? I would suggest there is no better picture than the one that's actually right in front of us in the Lord's Supper. Because it reminds us of what life looks like in this world. It looks for us what it looked like for Jesus. Suffering and rejection looks like the cross and it's hard. There are thorns and death is certain. But hidden in that message is a beautiful message of, of the hope that awaits us. Why do we use bread and wine? Why do we have to to represent Jesus' body and blood through bread and wine? Well, Well, in large part it's because we don't have his body anymore. We can't visit it. We can't go to the grave. The grave is empty because death did not have the final word. Jesus rose on the third day, passing out of judgment into eternal perfection. He ascended to his father's side and his body is physically, tangibly, and touchably, if that's a word, in heaven. And so on earth, all we have is bread and wine. And so the Lord's Supper is a perpetual reminder that those who turn to him for salvation, that for them, death will not have the last word for them either. Not for those who belong to Jesus. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a beautiful reminder to us that the end is coming But those who are prepared for it need not fear. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this uh, this morning. And please join me in prayer. Lord, we long to be prepared to be ready at any time. But that means setting our hearts fully on you. Desiring you above all else. For all who desire you gain everything, and those who desire anything else lose all. And so we ask that you teach us what it means to desire you above all earthly wealth, above all earthly comforts, above all earthly pleasures, to be fully satisfied in you. Even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.